A warm welcome if you are new to us this week and a very warm welcome back for those of you that joined us last week. If you did miss last week, what this is about is kind of a series of webinars and you can join us for as many of them as you want to or can do. Um, looking at kind of the role of well-being and what well-being looks like at all times, but particularly during what a lot of people are describing as a, a bit of a crisis. And we had an interesting discussion about that word crisis in the last one. So just a few sort of introductions again, or reintroductions. My name's Russell and I run a Facebook page with Steve over there. Hello everyone. Uh, and really we've been wanting throughout this whole process to do as many things as we can that help other other people just to be useful really and uh, some like-minded folk on your screen uh, Stu Newbury and Liz Scott there are uh, good friends of mine who I've known for four years so I met when I moved down to Devon and they are also very keen to help people out at this time and support other people and their job is well they run an organization called Inner Compass which really centers around this world of well-being so they um, wanted to do something with us with Steve and I around well-being to support educators in particular during this time because it's a very peculiar time for us as educators on how we're kind of handling uh, an ever-changing kind of climate around us so last week we began we kind of did an introduction to perhaps a slightly different way of looking at well-being than than is maybe conventional and, and just to summarize kind of a couple of key aspects of that before before moving on to the focus for this week we described the approach to well-being we were talking about as kind of an inside out understanding that's kind of the term we might use for for the type of well-being we're talking about or the description of well-being and that kind of encompassed two broadly two main ideas and the first was that the way we all experience life is from the inside out and that kind of goes against the conventional view because i think we're taught a lot um in in kind of modern society that our feelings and our moods and our thoughts are as a result of everything that's out there going on around us so we can attribute our feelings to to what's going on around us where what we're saying is that actually we want want you to get a bit curious about that and look at things a little differently and we're kind of of the belief that um our whole experience of life our moods our feelings are self-generated it's not that stuff isn't going on out there around us but our kind of experience of that stuff is going on in here in our thoughts and that's kind of why you could have the same experience on two different days and on one day it feels terrifying and on the next day you feel like you can handle it because we're kind of generating from moment to moment the experience in our own minds through our thoughts and the second kind of key thing we we talked about last week was that well-being really isn't something we have to go around searching for and looking for by achieving things by ticking off lists by achieving goals which is quite often what we're led to believe in modern society and in education that we tick this many boxes and we'll feel okay and we'll be okay uh, where what we're saying again is that well-being is is much simpler than that it's innate and it's part of your psychological makeup so we kind of touched on that and we're going to keep coming back to those same principles throughout this whole journey because really it is as simple as that what we're going to talk about but what we want to do is to refer to that kind of inside out understanding of well-being in different contexts and what we really want to do is let you reflect on its relevance to your life and your jobs as educators we're not going to tell you what to think we're just going to share this understanding and and kind of what we think and you can you can take from that what you want really so 
I've kind of been talking to Liz and Stu about this stuff for about four years. And Steve, you've kind of come on that journey with me more recently. I'm curious, maybe um, if I unmute you, um, if you could just tell us in the last week or so, Steve, what's been your reflections about this inside out approach? Um, what I took away from it was the fact that I was allowing the variables outside my sphere to influence how I was thinking, basically. And when we've been thinking about the insecurity at the moment, and in particular, we're a new leadership team overall within my school. So there's certain schools of thought on how we should pursue the future. Um, with it being so up in the air, um, we were really kind of being dictated to from speculation, for example, which is why we're talking about it tonight. But what's been useful for me from a well-being point of view is being able to step back myself and actually centre myself on what I can control, basically, and, um, and then <clears throat> discuss it with the team because it's all well and good getting caught up in the midst of what's going on when actually we're, there are certain things we cannot control outside of us, but we can control how we ourselves are reacting to it. That's really interesting reflection. And I think we're going to, we're going to explore this idea of control quite, quite a bit in this conversation, which I'm looking forward to. So where we wanted to take this discussion next for us as educators is, is what to, uh, Steve's talking about, which is that I don't know about you lot, but I feel like I'm surrounded by speculation all the time lots and lots and lots of what ifs and whens the the when discussion seems to be constant when are we going back to school what will it look like how many kids are we going to have and before you know it you can feel quite overwhelmed by thoughts around that and we just want to support you and kind of bring you back in touch with your well-being and and kind of tap into that that wisdom that's there all the time during this time when it can feel very overwhelming so I'm going to pass over to, to Liz and Stu, if that's okay, and just throw it open a little bit in terms of um, this idea of speculation. But before I do that, I just wanted to kind of share one, one kind of reflection about what I'm seeing happening a lot, particularly online. So what I'm noticing is on, on almost a daily basis, I'm logging on to Twitter or Facebook and I'm a, a new tabloid newspaper article comes up there was on the weekend the Sunday Times released one about when we were going to go back and made to feel like it's going to be May and then there was something from the sun only a day or two ago and the headline and the image is always about making me feel like everything's going to change really soon and then if I do bother to read it I then see that actually it's all speculation it's all maybes but it's kind of reported as fact but what I also see is that people then retweet that or share that on Facebook and then I see a raft of comments from people jumping on and saying but what about this and how could they possibly do this and before you know it there's been an enormous amount of uh, emotional energy thrown into these conversations about about what ifs and when and I guess Stu and Liz from your point of view is looking at this inside out understanding I'm really curious about what you see uh, going on there. Yes, thank you. Uh, thank you, Russell, for the uh, opening, for the introduction, and to you, Steve, too, for your observations. Um, it's a real pleasure for us to be here uh, with you tonight to, to talk about this and to, in doing that, to, to maybe look at it from the perspective of this idea, well, it's more than an idea, but th this um, assertion then that, that we all 
reside in our innate well-being. That's our default. And um, it, it might seem strange to actually say that or to, to hear that if you've not heard it before, but often the, the conventional understanding is that we need to look outside of ourselves in order to achieve well-being. Well, actually, um, I heard somebody the other day say, well, it's a bit like it's a bit like looking for your own eyes. You know, you, 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 they're so close, you will never see your own eyes, but they are there all the time. And this idea, this assertion that well-being is our default, we start with that premise. <clears throat> and the, the conversation that we're having tonight is about speculation and how we can get caught up in uh, how we get caught up in an anxious future so something that, that, that maybe may or may not be happening is uh, the subject of our attention and uh, the mind then starts to go into action it will create all sorts of dramas um, it can create, create a real frenzy for ourselves. And if you're working in a team environment, when you're all faced with that, just multiply that by the number of people who are in your team, who are all going through, through the same stuff. And, and that in itself, I, I just raised the question, is that a great place to come up with a coherent plan that's going to serve you, the school, well, through the next phase, whatever that may be. So speculation, whilst it's interesting and whilst it's a good thing to plan, let's, let's, not, let's not pretend otherwise, it is essential. You, you've been doing it all your lives in school, you do need to plan. But actually I just wonder whether we are indulging in a lot of unnecessary damage to ourselves with internal conversations, anxiety, worry, stressful thinking about a future that may or may not happen. What about you, Liz? What would you say? Yes, and I think, um, you know, really, we're sort of looking at, at the nub of, of the work that, that we do. Because if you think about it, it's, it's actually, the future isn't stressful because we don't know what the future is. It's not inherently anything other than something we've invented in our, in our minds and we're now trying to understand in our minds and, and coming up with scenarios and stories in our minds about what may or may not happen. Now that's stressful. The, the, the energy that we go through mentally as to what we think the future might be, now that is stressful. And it's really helpful to, to realize what's going on. And, and, you know, we've got a really great system, uh, a psychological system that helps us understand what's going on. Because if I imagine a future that's frightening and I feel insecure, then what happens is that in my mind and in my insecurity, everything I think about looks insecure. So what I'm doing is I'm actually amplifying the feeling and I'm actually looking around in my mind at things for me to, to kind of consider and everything starts to look frightening and, and insecure. 
Now, when I start to realize that my feeling of insecurity and fear isn't actually telling me about a future, that there is no future, we, we, we can only live in the present moment, all that my insecurity is, is telling me and that feeling is telling me is that I'm getting lost in my thinking. It's almost like, uh, uh, you know, when you're driving the car and, and a light comes up on the dashboard of your car, it, the, the light is only telling you one thing. It's telling you to pay attention to what that light is telling you about. It's not telling you about your driving. It's not telling you about what traffic lights are coming up in the future. It's just letting you know about one thing and one thing only. And that's what our feelings are doing. They're letting us know in this moment what's going on for me um, emotionally. What is my state of mind like? And that's really useful information because when we start to plan a future based on insecurity and fear, we tend to invest a lot of energy with the wheels of our heads spinning around in circles, trying to come up with, with answers to all these questions that seem to be popping up, a bit like... Um, I don't know if you've ever played um, whack-a-mole, you know that thing where they, all these little moles and you've got to try and hit them with a hammer. Well, it's a little bit like that in our heads. As soon as you think you've sorted out one problem in your mind for the future, something else comes up, you think, oh, I've got to find, but what if that happens? I'll, I'll have to sort that out. So what's really helpful is that when you start to go, oh, my feelings are just letting me know that I'm feeling insecure and I'm imagining an insecure future. It's actually warning me that at the moment, I'm probably not going to make really good decisions about planning because, um, or considering what to do next because right at the moment I'm just lost in my thinking. Then what we do with that information, or what I tend to do, is I tend to stop investing so much energy in my thinking. I've noticed what's going on. And then as my mind settles from a clear space and a clear headspace, I start, you know, I might plan. I might think about what next but I'm coming from a very different space. Um, and for me, that makes a massive difference. So I'm just gonna ha hand back to, to, to Russell and Steve to see, I don't know, what you make of what we've been saying, if anything, you've got questions or, or whether it resonates or not. Steve, is there anything you want to say first? <clears throat> I was just thinking how true that is actually, Liz, because um, interesting to say that, when we first, the school's closed, I was on self-isolation with my family from someone else showing symptoms and I was really calm about it for the future thinking that's okay we will naturally go back to school I'll naturally see my class again I was sad not to see him at the time but always thought June time I can imagine going back there so in my mind I had a an end point as such um, the stress for me was at the time we're going into the unknown and I wasn't there to help in the building um, but I always thought there's an end point and then it's only been over the last week or so when I've seen the sensationalism in the journalists' articles that my mind's starting to go into overdrive thinking, crikey, I mean, are we going back sooner? And, and my mind was feeling like I wasn't okay with this, even though three weeks prior, I was thinking, yeah, this is absolutely fine. I know what's going to happen. So then it, from listening last week to you guys and working with Russell, I thought I just need to step back actually then because I was letting that insecurity and new new thoughts into my mind from the sensationalist journalism that I'd seen and that wasn't my natural default of thinking so I really had to step back and think right what is it that I'm getting worked up about and it was the emotions that are running wild on social media actually from articles <laughs> that are there to sell papers anyway and to create a bit of a stir 
Um, but I was letting it override my own emotional well-being and, and feelings that I had in my mind. That, that, that's a, a great example, Steve. And if I was to ask you this, so, so what would that um, speculation, how would it look in the absence of thought? Panic, really. And that the, the wrong no, it, people... No, are kind no, of, no, in the absence of uh, you, in the absence of thought. Well... There's logic to it in that it has to happen. So, Steve, logic, logic is, is thought yeah. too. So, so in the absence of thought, the, the reports are, are just neutral. Well, <clears throat> yes. And uh, that's, uh, yeah, when I said logic, I was just thinking that there, it's a canvas that's there and there, there is no um, feelings, emotions. It's, to, it's there to be done. Yeah, they they be, they do become very neutral when you take out you take the steam out. Um, another word that you used was you know I went into overdrive. Um, you know if if drive is is normal, I think we can all relate to overdrive is um, is not normal. Mm. And and yet actually what what we're inclined to do is to normalize operating at a hundred miles an hour. In in often. A stressful environment, worrying about what might or might not happen, um, and that—that's just that isn't normal. Can I pick yeah. up on on something from you, um, Liz, a moment ago? You were talking about times when you experience anxious thinking. I think it was quite good for me um, the first time I realised that you and Stu experience anxious thinking because I had, I think sometimes when you're working with people who specialise in wellbeing, you assume that you wander around uh, in life in this zen-like state where you're never insecure or, or anxious. And it was a real relief to know that you're humans. Um, but the way you talked about those anxious feelings, Liz, was like, information can you say a bit more about that and 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 how that doesn't need to be seen as such a negative because i think fear of emotion i think there's a sydney banks quote around that that we we really like about the where he talks about being scared of your experience and you always say actually it's about the fear of our thoughts that often gets in in the way can you say a bit about how what we sometimes perceive as as scary or is actually can actually be really useful information it's really useful information and, and um, I, I guess when you start to, to really see for yourself that you, you've got this grounded well-being and resilience that is just part of your psychological system and it shows up all the time. It just, it, in our lives, you know, none of us actually would be alive if, we, if it wasn't showing us up. Every time we get in the car and we drive or we cross a road, there is some deeper intelligence that is is kind of supporting, it's not just our intellect that is keeping us safe, there's some other intuitive intelligence that we that helps us navigate the world. And um, that always has our back, always. And, and somebody once described it to me once, and I loved it, is that if you, if you understand that, that psychologically we are, are built for well-being, and you understand that psychologically um, we, are, we have resilience as part of the makeup of who we are, then it means that in spite of the feelings that might sort of wash by at any one time or, or wash in my head or like clouds go through my head at any one time, 
there's a deeper part of me that knows that I am okay. Mm. And somebody just described it once and uh, they said that it's a little bit like setting sail in a boat that you know is unsinkable. <laughs> and, and psychologically, that's a little bit how I see myself is that I know that I'm going to experience storms and all weathers. But what I know is that psychologically, the, the, the design of the human psychological system is to weather those storms. It doesn't mean that you won't experience them. Mm. But knowledge is that the boat will never sink. Mm. And, and that's the bit for me that has made the biggest difference. Not that I don't have those feelings of anxiety and worry and fear. It's just that I, I kind of realise they're just part of the human experience. That's a wonderful reflection. And it really got me thinking about um, the context many of us are in at the moment. And last time I was in school, I was so caught up in just dealing with what was in front of me. I didn't really have time to reflect or worry about anything. So I just dealt with what was in front of me and fine, you know, okay with that. Where things have settled a little bit, you know, there's still lots of admin things for us all to sort out. Normally free school meal vouchers for our families. That seems to be the thing that lots of us are trying to sort out or, or food to get home to those families. But there's a little bit more time to reflect now. And when I came into school this morning, it was with lot, uh, yesterday, sorry, there was lots of people coming into school that also had been off for a couple of weeks. And what's been really interesting over the last 24 hours is obviously a lot of those people have not had much space to kind of talk to people about what's going on in their heads over the last couple of weeks they're doing lots of zoom quizzes um, with their colleagues and their friends and their family but perhaps that time to really talk so lots of these conversations are sort of happening incidentally in school and naturally some of that insecure thinking about the future is is coming out so for all of us stepping back into schools or working from home have you got any advice or thoughts there about when we come across a colleague or, or someone who's clearly in that space where they're experiencing lots of insecure thinking about how best to support them because that's a that's a really big part of what we're doing particularly leaders but it, whether you're class-based or TA or whatever you want to support those around you at the moment yeah it's a it's a great question and I'm sure that everybody here can relate to it the, the, the way I'll respond to that is that in, in the absence of understanding how how we operate in the way that we're describing it's so easy to get absorbed in um, anxious um, insecure type of conversations about um, something in the school it could be about the leadership it could be about a parent it could be about a colleague it could be about it could be it could be about anything what I see and notice is that when we get to understand what's going on, that somebody who is having some insecure thinking is, is just having some insecure thinking. That, that's it. But what we tend to do, we're inclined to actually put a name to that and sometimes innocently, sometimes not, maybe actually fan the flames of that, that, that sort of fire that's just about to kick off by maybe throwing another bit of evidence in to actually support the, the assertion about somebody or a situation. And actually what, what the invitation here is to do is to be really listening out 
for colleagues who might be, I call it going down a rabbit hole. They, they may well be um, getting themselves worked up. And that's an expression that we use, isn't it? Getting yourself worked up. And you can really take the sting out of that just by maybe, well, I was going to say, you know, hand on the shoulder. I'm not sure you can do that anymore. But, um, but, but, but just, just by a gesture of, uh, hey, should, should, we, should we just go for a walk? Or, hey, you know, why don't we just take five minutes for a breather? There's something that when we, when we interrupt that flow of insecure thinking, just that can actually do something to take the person away from their, their thoughts and feelings back in touch with who they truly are. And, and this is really what we, we're continually looking for. If you were present the other day, I was, I was describing what happens when a coaching client brings, brings something to us which is uh, which isn't working for them. They they want to change something. Uh, they've got a problem they want to resolve. The way I describe that is that they they've come with something that they believe about themselves and and their separation from who they truly are. Now that might take a bit of unraveling, but if if we look at how, the, how we are as human beings. We operate from a place of true self all the time. That's this idea that we all have innate well-being. We all are, we all are peace, we, all, we're all lo- we are love, we're wisdom. That's our default until thought gets in the way. And so in school, if you see that in another person where they've just gone off on one, it's just that thought's got in the way of who they truly are. That's it. And the best you can do often is A, not to inadvertently fan the flames. And secondly, it just might be to point in your way, just point them back to who they truly are. You know what, there's an analogy I often use with this in a school setting as a leader is that you know, people quite often come to me with with kind of problems and something that I feel like I'm gradually getting um, more in tune with as I sort of stay in touch with my well-being really is that I see sometimes that they come to me with something really practical that I can solve. And if someone comes and tells me the photocopier is broken, I'm not going to tell them that they're out of touch with their well-being. I'm going to fix the photocopier. Um, but what I see a lot more often, depending on how the photocopy is doing, is people coming to me in a really worked up, that kind of worked up state you're talking about. And it might be that in there somewhere, there's a something I can help with really practically. But more often than not, what I see is that they've gone down one of those rabbit holes you're talking about, Stu, and um, and worked themselves up, which is, we, we all do it sometimes. And innocently in the past that I might have attempted to to fix the thing um, that they're they're worried about and inadvertently I've kind of I've almost reinforced the idea that it is something to worry about and I think sometimes in our in our desire to be kind and help people we can reinforce the idea that there's a problem and I think at the moment with the school situation if we start investing too much energy too soon in trying to fix problems that don't exist yet or come up with plans based on information we don't know yet, 
are we maybe innocently reinforcing the idea that there's a big problem there that doesn't actually exist and actually wasting a lot of energy? And, and I love what you say that. I think you've really summed it up beautifully, um, Russell, which is, uh, and we, we use um, uh, listening or we see that listening, if you just listen to somebody, we call it listening for well-being, that in that, in that process, in that space, the other person who's in their in, insecure thinking starts to settle. Mm. So when someone is in insecure thinking, it's a bit like a child that's having a bit of a meltdown and you try every single thing you can think of in your repertoire, like ice cream, chocolate, you know, anything. It's like anything to stop it. And they go, no, I don't like it, I don't like it. And people are a bit, a bit like that in their heads. If you try and fix or give advice when somebody is in that headspace, they automatically in their head just try and repel you. Because really what, they, what they really want is they want to be heard and in that hearing their mind settle. And then what they do is they either know what to do themselves or they'll be really clear and, not, and say, could you help me with this? I'm really stuck. And, and that's then an invitation to, to help. And that comes from a very different space. I'm smiling because I just really get that as a parent, uh, particularly of a six-year-old who like 10 minutes before this call, uh, I was attributing my feelings of anxiety very much to her behaviour because we knew we needed to come on and get this sorted and she didn't want to go to bed. And it didn't matter that I thought I'd absolutely nailed bedtime and we'd gone up early and we had had a lovely story and we were really relaxed and gave her a nice cuddle. And I came down the stairs and she started demanding her mum who was downstairs reading the story to, to our elder daughter. And I can, I can really see that um, we, we do that with adults as well, don't we? That we then get into the almost wanting to tackle all the problems because my, my six-year-old's an expert at the then, you know, I need this, I need that. And, and you can get, you get pulled into the, the story she's telling me about why she can't sleep when the reality is actually she just needs to settle, which is something she finds very hard. And interestingly, uh, even in that really worked up anxious thinking, this idea that you were talking about or you've spoken to me about in the past, that there's always that bit of me that's still wise and knows what to do. What I knew what to do in that moment was actually to walk away because I didn't want to get cross and I didn't want to take that because I knew my feelings of anxiety were being self-generated because I was worried about getting on and being on time. Uh, and actually sort of I heard it go go quite quiet. It might be that my wife did just go and rescue. <laughs> but but I saw her, you know, I could kind of hear her settle because I didn't get, you know, we stopped giving her someone to argue with in that moment. And I think sometimes in adult, with adults at the moment, we could be drawn into those stories that we're all telling about why, you know, schools are going to be difficult and we're not going to be able to cope with this, where what you're saying, I think, is that there's a kind of a natural wisdom that will arise out of um, kind of calm thinking spaces, not busy ones. Yeah, and we're really, we're perfectly designed to deal with what's in front of us. That's the design of, of our system. Is we're, we're, a bit like you with your daughter tonight, is that you, you had that flurry of thinking and yet you, you had at some intuitive level an understanding of what to do or what not to do in that mm. situation. I mean, you preferred it wasn't happening, but it was happening. And in that moment, you found what to do. Now, if, if I told you that was gonna happen an hour before it happened, you would have come up with a whole load of ideas and plans and things but, but mm. what trumps that every single time is in the moment, trusting that wisdom you talk about, trusting that intuition and, and knowing how to listen into it. That, that, that's really important. Thank you. So I was, I was thinking about the, the word control came up earlier. I think Steve might have used it. And um, 
really find this idea of control fascinating because would it be fair to say in your work um liz and Stu, you probably come across this idea of a, a desire for control quite a lot and i'm i guess i want these webinars to be really relevant for the present but i also i see i see what the relevance of what we're talking about way beyond that and when we're talking about being caught up in speculation and rumor and worry i think i've done that lots of time in the past even when there hasn't been a national crisis or so so <laughs> Do you see that a lot in your work, this obsession with the control and the desire for control? Yeah, I do. And um, I, I just pose the question, to what extent are we in control? To what extent do we have control? Is it, we often hear, only worry about the things that we're in control of. Well, just, just that is, is a very interesting question to, to try and around with. You think about all the planning that's taken place in the world for the year 2020 in normal circumstances and then from left field something comes and hits us on broadsides and scuppers any idea that, that we were in control. I sort of, um, I hear scientists talking about it I, I listen out for some podcasts about the idea of being in control and there's some scientific evidence to say that, um, that, that control is illusionary. I can see from, we talk about the true self and the separate self, the true self being who we truly are, peace, love and wisdom, and the separate self being that illusionary self, the ego, that, that place of insecure thinking, anxiety, etc. From that perspective, the ego needs to think that it's in control. And, and the ego itself is illusionary too. So I, I'm, I'm just sort of poking around really and just sort of inviting you to consider to what extent are we in control? What does it look like? Um, are there examples of, of being in control or are they hindsight? Are they when we look back and something took place and, and, and we conveniently make an assessment that we were in control and, and it happened the way we anticipated it? So that it's, it's, a, it's a very deep subject, but my observations are very seriously questioning this assertion that we have control. It's, uh, it's fascinating for me and I, I, whenever we talk about it, I think back to a coaching conversation Stu had with me about two, three years ago. Uh, guilty here for, for having a bit too much of an obsession with needing to be in control in the past and um, as an assistant head trying to raise attainment in a, in, a, in, a, in a good school, but where we kind of had a few ticking time bombs, to use that phrase of cohorts, where, where their, their kind of predicted attainment was much lower. And I was responsible for year five and six and very panicked by what I could see coming, which was that I was going to be really fighting to rate, like keep attainment even reasonably high with cohorts who perhaps had some very large gaps in their, their learning and their understanding and I was having a coaching conversation about this with Stu one day because I was feeling really quite anxious 
And he used an analogy with me that I found really helpful since, and I think it's still relevant at times like this, which you talked about laying the table, um, Stu. And he said that if you think about your work as a teacher, as a leader, it's not that it's irrelevant or you're, you're not having an impact on anything, but you're, what you're doing is trying to create the very best conditions for the children to, and the children and the adults to do the best job they possibly can. So you're creating that good school culture, you've got good relationships, you're making sure, you know, you're teaching well and the curriculum strong and so on. And it's a bit like laying the table for a dinner party. You know, I've got the music on, I've invited the guests, I've laid the table, I've cooked the dinner. And once the doorbell goes and people start arriving, the rest is kind of out of my control. I've kind of set the conditions as best I can. And then it's kind of, having to accept what now is not necessarily my control and you sort of said it's the same with the children that you know I can't kind of hold on to them through every single moment of their learning and their education and I, I just wondered how relevant that might feel for you Steve in, in your role as a leader and some of the work that you've done as as well. No I can absolutely sympathise with that actually and you know me well Russell we've worked together and uh, to a degree it's inherent in some leadership styles that there is that desire to have the control on the variables that you've got in school. And particularly, we both have the pressure within our role of that end of primary school attainment. And I can sympathise from that point of view when you're overseeing and you can, you can influence what's happening, but you can't control what's happening. Mm. Um, and there's that degree, that's where the whole there's a key to having great relationships with people and the trust that you can build up within, within a team to know you can't control it all, but you can assist what is happening around you. Um, and like we were saying, in an ideal world, as a year six teacher, I'd want to be putting the cherry on the top of the cake. And that's assuming that all the layers have already happened. But I can't control the layers happening, but I can at least help as a leader ensure that people feel they are adding to the layers without the, the panic at the end of it going, Oh gosh, it hasn't happened yet. But so, yeah, I, I'm, I too, I'm definitely guilty of that desire for control, but there's, that's where I need to reflect better to think, okay, I can't control everything, but how can I assist in the journey that everyone's on? Stu and Liz, what do you see as the relevance of that laying the table analogy at times like these for schools? I know you're not mm. school leaders stuck in schools, but How's that relevant to, to what we've got going on now? The best you can do is to get the best out of your staff, to create the best conditions for them to you know, feel valued, to feel that they can contribute, to feel that they're trusted, that they're held in high regard. It's, it, it is about creating the conditions for them to, to be at their best. Go on, I was going to say, and I think what, what naturally happens and again, I'm going to just use the, the phrase again. We, we have this sort of deeper in, intuitive intelligence. So I don't know how else to describe it. We've all got it. And what seems to have happened is that, that we've squashed that and made our, our cognitive worrying minds the master. Now, our cognitive worrying minds are actually the servant of this deeper in, intuitive intelligence. And, and what I see time and time again with leaders is that when they, when they stop fueling the thinking and worrying cogs in their head, and that settles down. Naturally, what arises is um, their ability to connect, build relationships, trust. It, it's, it's, what become, it's not something that they're doing because they read it in a manual. 
it's the natural thing to do because it makes complete sense. Mm. And so what I really see then is that you're laying the table, that you're providing the best set of circumstances so that you as leaders don't get caught up in your thinking, that your staff don't get caught up in their thinking because you know that when your teachers are present at the front of the room with a group of young people, that that is when they are at their best. Mm-hmm. And as soon as they get lost in their heads thinking, I need to do this and I need to tick that box and someone's going to come in and watch my teaching later, then you've kind of lost the very thing that you, you want them to be. It's, the, it's wow. the beingness. So that's how I would see it. Yeah, that's wonderful. And it's really got me reflecting on at this time. I mean, I think for the time being, I've been quite good at almost parking, needing to plan until I'm a bit clearer about timelines and when things, you know, really root that in fact and, and, and factual information from the government. But it's just made me think about that when that time does come, whether that's in a week or two weeks or a month, when we can start planning more concretely, that actually the, the very best thing I can offer is settled, supportive thinking spaces where people can reflect intelligently about the circumstances because you're right the people that we've got in our buildings are there because they're naturally drawn to that work aren't they they're brilliant with the children they 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 know how to meet those kids needs better than anybody and it's very easy for me in a leadership position to feel like I've got to have all the solutions to what that's going to look like and and be some kind of superhero in these circumstances and actually it's really got me reflecting about the more I can create those calm reflective spaces which actually there's a bit more scope to do that at the moment with with some of our staff bearing in mind the numbers of kids in school that's that's the most useful thing I can offer in terms of eventually coming up with some quite pragmatic sort of solutions and ways forward I don't know what you think Steve what's going on in your mind no absolutely and um I was just thinking actually we've been making phone calls home to our children this week and an interesting observation from a lot of staff has been that when they've actually been talking to the children directly and asking them how they're getting on with this whole situation, a really interesting outcome is that at least a third of the children have said, actually, I'm, I'm okay with the situation as it is at the moment. My anxieties are coming with the thought of returning to the normal or the new normal. And I was just mm-hmm. wondering, Stu and Liz, from a, a point of view where the teachers, they're, they're inherent need is to want to make that right uh, they can't they can't and it, it will take time but and um, what are your thoughts on the fact that actually the children may be more anxious about returning to normality rather than coping in their world with what's going on at the moment well my hunch is this is that i don't think i think the children will just turn up and do like the children seem to be most resilient mm youngsters are more resilient in a way or, or seem to display their resilience more than, than we do. They're very adaptable and flexible in, in the situation. And a bit like Russell said, you guys are so brilliant at connecting with, with the children and, and creating that, 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 that space of relationship um, with them that in that setting, calm space, that just deal with anything. That's what's kind of really, I think, we kind of get stumped by really is that, that, that youngsters were built to be adaptable and to be resilient and and actually we're built to deal with different circumstances so my and hunch it, is that they'll they'll be great I, I agree Liz and you talk about uh, quite a lot about looking for or or pointing to the resilience and the natural wisdom in others and I sometimes find when we 
start from a point of looking at what's not there or what appears to be absent, we, we build this illusion for people that there is something wrong with them, that they are missing, that they are lacking, that they are lacking resilience. And I don't see that um, in people anymore. So um, I think we'll, we'll wrap up now, but I just want to thank you all for, for sticking with us and, and, and having some time to reflect. Great to all see right. you all. Thanks very much. Thank, thank you, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye. Have a good week. Don't keep the deputy.